If you all would open your Bibles to Romans 8, that will be where I will be spending the majority of the time. When I first thought about speaking to you all today without any of the elders here, a myriad of ideas went through my head. First, I was saying, couldn't we just pick a whole bunch of really good hymns and scripture readings and just leave it at that and let me not speak at all? But... The elders wanted me to do a kind of a shorthand version of what they're talking about on the cruise, where so many of us uh, are today. So we settled on Romans 8 as a suitable summary, and I went through and I prepared an outline. I submitted it to the elders, got a various responses. I, Pastor Arnie was very encouraging. He said, hey, if you're willing to preach it, I'm willing to let you, whatever. Pastor Jack said, well, the outline is good, but I think it would take me about four weeks to get through that. Then I went to Pastor Michael, and he said, four weeks? That would take at least four months. And since I have neither four weeks nor four months nor anything else, just this one Sunday, I've had to condense my outline quite a bit. So while the text says Romans 8, take heart, I'll be concentrating on the beginning of the chapter and then specifically 28 through 30 and some of the other parts I will, I will, I will go right through really quickly. So, you know, you don't have to worry. I'll get you out on time. Even though the clock back there is behind, don't worry, I'll, I'll still get you out on time. So, what I want to do is I want to start Romans 8, start reading. I'm going to read the first four verses. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the chapter begins with the word therefore, and whenever that happens, you should always look at it and see what the word is there for. This particular therefore, I think, looks back to the struggle at the end of chapter 7. Romans 7, if you remember with me, has a discourse by Paul on the conflict between two natures. If you have the NIV and it's got the title headings, it says, Struggling with Sin. And in verse 24, Paul asks the climaxing question. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And this leads him to his thankful exclamation of verse 25, where it says, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So when he begins here in chapter 8, he is not talking about the propitiatory work of Christ for us. That is a very important subject, and he discusses it in chapters 3 through 5, specifically 321 through 511. But those who are in Christ Jesus already are the ones before us in this section. It is on account of the Spirit's acting as a law of life, delivering the believer from the contrary law of sin and death, and his yet unredeemed members, that's when there is no condemnation. Now, it's really important to see this. The subject is no longer Christ's work of salvation, 
but the spirits work with us. Now, these two aren't separable in reality, but they are different benefits. Let me try to give an example. Imagine you have a friend, which is tough for me to imagine, but if you imagine that you have a friend, and he's a really good friend, and is the most skilled and good at everything, and you get stuck in a ditch out in the middle of nowhere. And you call up this friend, and this friend comes, and he gets you, he picks you up, it's the middle of the night, he drives you home. The next day, he goes, he, I don't know, he's got a truck or something, and he pulls your car out of the ditch, and then he goes and fixes your car and delivers it back to you. Now, these are very distinct benefits. He's coming, he's picking you up, he's getting your car out of the ditch, he's fixing it, all of these things he's doing for you, but they're all flowing from the friendship of this one friend. Similarly, this is a situation where God is acting in three persons together for our benefit. The benefits are innumerable, but the actions of God are not separable. He's going to do them all. He is going to save us where there is no condemnation, and he's also going to work with us on having a law of life where our, our lives improve. So, we, as we're discussing many of these gifts... God's gift of salvation is incredible, and yet it's not the entirety of the gift. We receive the gift from the deliverance of, from bondage. The, the, let me say that again, because no one understood the first time, I'm sure. We receive the gift of deliverance from bondage, and we get this from the Holy Spirit. Eternity begins at the moment of our salvific experience. So as we're recognizing God's immense gift, and as we go through this chapter, we will see that there are greater benefits, but the commencement of the gifts begin immediately upon salvation. Not only are we saved from what's happened in the past, but we are also saved to live a life, as the scriptures say, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, those of you who are attending Pastor Michael's Sunday School class, you'll go much deeper into the work of the Spirit, and I don't even want to touch on that. But the Holy Spirit is an immense gift, and without the Spirit within us as a law of life, there would be nothing but condemnation. So it's very freeing to read this verse and say there's ne- there is therefore now no condemnation because we know that without this spirit of law in our lives, there would be nothing but condemnation. We have no power within ourselves. This is one of the core beliefs of the church, which they're talking more about in the cruise, uh, but we're trying to condense it here. Apart from the blessed Holy Spirit, we would live a life of perpetual bondage to the flesh. And as Paul states in Romans 6.21, the end of which things is death. And we're going to go, we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we go through the chapter. But now for those of you who, like me, have a profound respect for memorization in the King James Version, and you may have memorized verse 1 in the King James Version, where it ends with an extra phrase, those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In our text, this is in verse 4 alone, and there's good reason for that. The clause is clearly in its proper place in verse 4, where the manner of the believer's walk, not his safety from condemnation, is described. The lack of condemnation is not dependent on our progressive sanctification going well. So whether or not we think it's going well in our progressive sanctification, whether or not we are, we are living, the lack of condemnation is based entirely on the gift of our salvation. Now, let me be clear. The work of the Holy Spirit in the believer as a, is an essential, fundamental part of our salvation. And it's from this concept that the title of the sermon, which you may have not heard, but it's in the bulletin, was on the screen, flows. 
But the words, those who are in Christ Jesus, express the glorious place God has given the believer. The question is not now one of justification. It's one of position. We have no condemnation. And this lack of condemnation also leads to a justification of life, which means that we share in his risen life. Okay. So, the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't just free us from the condemnation of sin. It frees us from the power of sin. And I think it's no accident that this chapter, which we're going to go through, and talks about us being free from the sin ruling in our lives, comes right after Romans 7, when Paul's talking about the conflict of two natures. He's talking about struggling with sin. He says the things he wants to do, he, he can't, and the things he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing. And immediately after that, he says, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he doesn't stop there. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. If we were to look at our lives before salvation, for example, in chapter 3 of Romans, where verses 10 through 18, where it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is no one that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues have they have used for deceit. The poison of snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you thought you were exempt, you can read on to verse 23 where it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are in and of ourselves, incapable of doing good. And this is why, right after Paul talks about his struggle between the two natures, he makes a clear distinction that while he may be battling the will of the flesh with the will of the Spirit, that battle is is not a lost cause. There is no condemnation for him if he's in Christ Jesus, and the law of the Spirit is life. Okay? Now, I'm going to open to Romans 8 again and read some more verses. We're uh, starting at verse 5. I'm going to read through verse 17. It says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under no obligation to the flesh, no obligation to live according to the flesh. 
For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you who have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you who have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I I must try to be very unambiguous this morning. Christian living is essentially supernatural living. And by supernatural, I mean powers that are at work in Christian living that are above the natural. I don't mean anything like mystical forces, ESP, various forms of sorcery or witchcraft, out-of-body experiences. All of those are an abomination to God. Deuteronomy 18 and Isaiah 8 tell us that. Because they all belittle the self, the all-sufficiency of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, as God's way of transformation. Instead, what I have in mind is very specifically the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives by faith on the basis of Christ's historical death and resurrection. This work is not vague in general. It's clear, specific, and rooted in concrete. The changing of nature we receive is a very specific and exact gift from God. It is something that we can say, thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. It's not merely some program to win friends and influence people. It's certainly not a political movement. If you, if you were to go there, and I'm getting this quote from someone's specific site, it says, each one of us is rooted in our own religious tradition. These ideas enable those of different faiths to work together without any of us compromising our beliefs. For the concepts of divine guidance and moral standards expressed in various terms are common to all the world's major religions. I hope that you don't agree with that. Living the Christian life is not that sort of thing. The concepts of divine guidance are not common to religions. We must get an entirely different mindset. And the mindset is an utterly crucial word in the text we just read. It said we must have the mindset of the Spirit of God. This is what defines us as Christians. So you say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian from this text? I see five steps. First, it starts in verse 4 and it says that the requirement of the law is filled in us. And then, in verse 4, it says that the law is fulfilled on us and that we walk according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. Then, thirdly, it says in verse 5 that walking in accordance with the Spirit is because of a certain spiritual mindset behind it. Then, fourth, the reason of this mindset of the Spirit produces a walk that fulfills the law. And the reason that the mindset of the flesh doesn't is that the mindset of the flesh is death and the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. The spirit is effective in shaping our mind and shaping our walk because he is alive. He imparts spiritual life. He doesn't just speak laws or rules and tell us to do them. He comes into our lives and gives us the ability to walk after the spirit. And then fifthly, in verse 7 and 8, it speaks of our total inability to please God while in the flesh. The root is an independent spirit that cares little for God. 
and prefers other things to God. It's a what some like to call a suicidal love affair with independence and self-determination. That's, that's what has to be overcome when we're going to fulfill the law. Do you see how this is different than what the world says with the paragraph I read earlier that says all of us are working from the same vantage point? That's what the text is talking about. It's about moving from slavery to insubordination and hostility to moving to the freedom of life and obedience. This is the Christian journey. This is what it is to be a Christian. So then the question comes up, how can our imperfect obedience and imperfect love be called a fulfillment of the requirement of the law? Now, I believe that in Romans 8, it teaches us that the law is fulfilled in us. But does that mean that it's saying being pretty good will do, being pretty good with the law because we know we're not perfect? Well, let me just say no, it doesn't. And to answer that, I want to start by directing your attention to verses 12 and 13 where it says, So then, brethren, we are under no obligation to the flesh uh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that so then is referring to... The glorious truth of verse 11, which says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who has raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We're not just moving to pretty good. We have the Spirit dwelling in our mortal bodies. As I said earlier, at the precise moment of our salvific experience, we start to experience some of the greatness which is to come. We don't owe any, we don't owe any loyalty to our flesh. We don't owe it anything but enmity and war. Uh, we've been dying since the day we were born, which you may have heard. We don't want to join forces with the enemy. We don't want to pay for our destruction by giving into the flesh. We, we don't want to be a debtor to the flesh. We don't owe anything to the flesh. What we owe is everything to the Spirit of God. And it says this in verse 13, which I just read, but we owe everything to the Spirit of God. He is going to make us alive in the resurrection. And even now, we can have victory over our sins only by the Spirit. If the Spirit, if, if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. And this we owe to the Spirit. If we try to survive in a, as a Christian in any way other than by the Spirit, We will not survive. We will die. Again, do you see how this is different than the what the world may tell you about how all religions are pointing to the same place? Until you believe that our life is a war, that the stakes are our souls, you will probably just play out Christianity with no vigilance or passion. If this is where you find yourself, you're in a precarious position. The enemy has lulled you to sleep as if there were nothing serious at stake. But God in his mercy gives us this passion to revitalize our efforts. And in Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus said, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to take it violently. Now then the question is, but violence against whom? We don't just want to be arbitrarily violent. 
And then that's when we read on in Matthew 18, a little bit later from the same discourse where Jesus says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If you want to enter life, take it violently. It's a picture of the most radical kind of assault on your own sin. Not the sins of others, but on your own. And when you lay on top of this, Romans 8.13, which we just read, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You put to death the deeds of your own body. There is an, there's a mean streak in authentic self-control. A lot of times we read through the fruit of the Spirit, and you know the list, and you go through them, and you hear that self-control at the end. And a lot of people think that self-control is being calm, cool, collected all the time with nothing ever coming in your way. But there is, there is benefits to being calm, cool, and collected. I don't want to discount that. But there is more to self-control than just never speaking up. John Piper says, There is something about war that sharpens your senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves, and you are in attack mode. Someone coughs, you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps you vigilant. Christianity is not settle in and live at peace with the world the way it is kind of religion. If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of your own body, then you will live. Christianity is war. There's a mean, violent streak in the true Christian life. But the violence against whom or what? It's not other people. It's violence against all the impulses in us that would be violent to other people. It's violence against all the impulses in ourselves that would make peace with our own sin and settle in to a peacetime mentality. It's violence against lust in ourselves. It's against enslaving desires for food, caffeine, sugar, chocolate, alcohol, pornography, money, praise of men, approval of others. It's violence against the impulses on our soul that would act in a racist manner. And it's violence against sluggish indifference to injustice, poverty, abortion. Okay. We are not left hopeless in this war against sin. We are saying that, we are saying that when temptation comes, you look to a word from God, especially a word that He promises will be with us, will be, will do more for us, than what sin could ever promise. And if you believe Him, there is the main battle, and you will sever the root of sin. So what we need to do is immerse our mind and heart in the fountain of life and power, the promises of God. Study the Scriptures, I mean. Um, When temptation comes, take this all-satisfying word, the sword of the Spirit, and believe it, and by it sever the root of sin. Kill it. And the freedom from condemnation of sin is very important. It's, it's beginning to talk about what God bestows upon us. For those of you who know 1 John 3, 1, where it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. That is just an incredible gift. So, to recap a little bit, the Spirit has liberated us from the bondage of the law, empowered us to fulfill its just requirement, enabled us to live each day according to the Spirit, lived within us, given life to our spirits. It will give life to our bodies. It's obliged us to live His way, put to death our body's misdeeds, led us as God's children, witness to us of what we are, and given us a foretaste of our inheritance in glory. And then when we go back to what Cecil read right before I started from Psalm 8, where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And 
He goes, I'm actually going to read it again because, you know, I, I think it's, it's incredible when we look at this. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful thief cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. When you consider that that God, whose name is majestic in all the earth, who created space with his fingers. And I, I always think of fingers, you know, it's when you just want to touch something just so slightly to move it into just the right place when you're dealing with something that's precise. And, and we think of God creating the vast universe and you know, I always get these emails that show me pictures of the earth and how much bigger it is than, than me and then how small the earth is compared to the sun, how so, small the sun is compared to the solar system and how small that is compared to the Milky Way and all. And it goes through all that stuff and, and you realize how small you are and to think that God put all that into place with his fingers. And then, why does he even consider us at all? What, what are we? And he comes back with, but you have made him just a little lower than God. And he's given us dominion over this. This is such a gift that God has given us. So I'm going to move to verses 18 through 25 from Romans 8. And again, I'm not going into nearly as much detail as uh, we would if we were taking this chapter slowly. But I'm trying to do it in a relatively quick manner. Go through an entire chapter that they say is summarizing what they're talking about on the cruise. But verse 18... Through 25, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. These verses move from the present ministry of God's Spirit to the future glory of God's children, of which the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. And we talked about this. This... And this development is in the scripture is prompted by the allusion to our sharing the sufferings and glory of Christ. These sufferings and glory are inextricably linked. Um, they were inextricably linked in the case of Christ. And while they're inextricably linked, they represent two ages. They contrast between this age and the age to come. They cannot be compared, yet they both concern God's creation and children. 
And if you read these verses, you may ask the question, is the creation personified? How can the earth have these human emotions? Does the rest of creation have the ability to worship? And some of you would point to Psalm 96 or Psalm 98 and say, well, you know, the rocks could cry out and all that. But I, but I think that the better question to ask is, how are we, without the Spirit of Christ, any different than the rest of creation? Do we have the ability to serve God without Him? See, but our subjection is not without hope. Our existence is one of decline, decay, death, and decomposition. The second law of thermodynamics tells us this. But Christ spoke of being born again. And if you've been here lately, you've heard Pastor Jack preach on, on that story recently. You can get on the internet. Uh, and it, we have the hope of being freed from corruption and the most, and the most suitable similitude is that of a woman in childbirth. And there are many things we can get from that. Uh, first of all, we're not content with our present state. And yet we're not so distressed that we pine away for a remedy. A better state awaits us but this is our Christian dilemma. We are caught in the tension of what Christ has inaugurated and what he will consummate. The indwelling spirit gives us joy. The coming glory gives us hope. The interim anticipation gives us pain. This section is an example of what it means to live between things, between present difficulty and destiny, and between sufferings and glory. The struggle of our perseverance is that we must neither be so enthusiastic that we lose endurance nor so patient that we lose anticipation. The best summary I think I can give you is as John Calvin says, as translated by John Owen, how inexcusable will our softness or sloth be if we faint during the short course of a shadowy life. As, as I, I read earlier to you from 2 Corinthians 9, and we said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, the verses right before those I read, Many of you may not know this. They're about giving. Mostly talking about giving back money to God. And we worship a God who is, as we said, so majestic. He's able to put the planets and the stars into place with his fingers. And yet he thought of us. He allows us to give him filthy rags and accepts them as gifts that he honors. This is an amazing gift. There is no other religion in the world that creates a deity that you have the ability to give back to and to serve in that way that he will accept as a gift. And again, can you see the differences here? Now, if we read verses 26 and 27, again, going through the chapter, and I know this is quick and some of you wish I would spend more time. Some of you are saying I need to be done already. But in verses 26 and 27, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I think that the most natural action of the homesick Christian is prayer. Now, you can talk about prayer for a long time. I recently taught an entire Sunday school class that took like 17 weeks on this class. And if you want to go to the website and download the outlines and, and the audio, you can do that. But I don't want to, so I don't want to belabor this point. But as we talk about the Spirit and the anticipa 
in the anticipation of the glory that is to come. And we realize that we are not there yet. And we realize that we can talk to the God who is. There's nothing more natural than that. But even our talking to Him would be ineffective on its own. We need the Spirit to translate our groanings. The very thing we are doing, we're groaning uh, because we can't fully escape the slavery of corruption. We talked about all groaning together. The very thing we do is what the Spirit does for us in His intercessions according to the will of God. To me, that's just an amazing gift. But it brings us to verses 28 to 30, which some will say from verses 28 to 39 which is the end of the chapter, uh, Paul writes as close to a passage on perfection as we may see. Some people will tell you that Romans 8, 28 through 39, as a 12-verse package, is as good as it gets in the Bible. I, I don't know that I want to place any scripture above another, but it is, it is very good. And as we read it, uh, we're going to concentrate on 28 to 30. And I told you that at the beginning, and then we'll breeze through 31 to, or 31 to 39 the end and we'll be done but verses 28 through 30 and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and these whom he predestined he also called And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we've talked about some of these a little bit already, but I want to talk about all of them right here. Upon some points, a believer is absolutely sure. We know, for instance, that God sits at the helm of a vessel when it rocks the most. We know that there's an invisible hand guiding the world. And that wherever providence may drift... It is Jehovah who steers it. That reassuring knowledge prepares us for everything. We look over raging waters and see the Spirit of Jesus treading the billows. And we hear a voice saying, It is I, be not afraid. We know that God is always wise. And knowing this, we are confident that we can, there can be no accidents. We are confident that there can be no mistakes and that nothing can occur that not ought to. We can say, if I should lose everything I have, then it's better to lose it than to have it. The worst calamity in the world is the wisest and kindest thing that could ever befall me. And we know that because God ordains it. If I lose everything I have, it's better. That's what we know because we know that God... And we don't just hold this as a theory. We know this as a fact. Everything has worked to good. Poisonous drugs, when mixed together, have worked cures. There have been sharp cuts that have cleaned out proud flesh and facilitated healing. Every event that works out the most divinely blessed results. And so believing that God rules all, that he governs wisely, and that he brings out the good and evil, our heart is assured, and he is able calmly to meet each trial as it comes. The believer can, in the spirit of true resignation, pray... Send me what you will, as long as it comes from thee. Never came there an ill portion from thy table of thy children. But it doesn't just stop there. um, And it's not just, you know, if we were to stop there, God works all things together for the good. 
that is incomplete because it's the good of those who love God who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. A lot of people like to skip over the image of His Son part, but we as believers are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. In the world's eyes, very little is a sure sign that you're a loser than when you are slavishly following a person. It takes away what many consider to be honor, which is individuality. Uh, takes away what many consider to be power, which is originality. The moment you follow someone else, if you paint a painting that has been that is a that is a copy of another painting that is deemed to be very good, you are seen as as neither respectable nor respected. I mean, if you're a radio host and all you do is copy someone else's material, you're deemed to not be good enough to be on the air. But there are certain exceptions to this even in the human realm. There are select models that people say are perfect or close to perfect that if you follow them, you're, you're not being foolish, but you're being smart. Um, and there's various schools in this. You could say Socrates, Plato, Michelangelo, Raphael, Bill Parcells, Ronald Reagan. These are people who are respected so much in their field. If you watch, uh, if you if you watch any person who's running for office who wants to create themselves as a conservative, they don't come forth and say, "I'm really conservative." Look, you know, they always like say, I, "I'm the next Ronald Reagan." Well, why is that? Because people think Ronald Reagan was very good. You know, if if and this is even more true when we're imitating Christ. To imitate other men may be seen as a weakness, but to copy Christ is strength. Christ is the perfect type of manhood. We should imitate him, and those who do it most nearly would be the most original man on earth. It's a paradox, but it's one that only needs to be tried to be proved. No man will be looked upon as so strange, so singular being among other people, as the one who nearest approaches the image of the Lord Jesus. He will be looked upon with pleasure and delight before all the world. Christ is the man, the archetype. He is not to be a lone man. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that his son might be the firstborn among many brethren. He's the firstborn in the sense that he's the greatest, but also that he's first begotten from the dead, but also that he is, as I said earlier, the archetype, and we are those who are following him. What a glorious privilege it is for you and me. If we are indeed the children of God, we are in some respects children of God in the same sense as Christ himself was. He is the firstborn and we are among his many brethren. So what an eternal honor it is for us to be among these many brethren. But how do we follow this? And that's where we go to verse 30. In, in 2 Timothy 1.9 it says who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. Now here's the foundation uh, which, by which we can judge our calling. It's a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. This, for, this calling forbids us all trust in our own work. It forbids us from relying on ourselves. What it does is it's a total reliance on the Spirit. Nothing will pain us so much as sin... If we, if we can truly pray, 
I desire to be rid of sin. Lord, help me to be holy. Is this not a panting of the heart? Is this not something where the Holy Spirit, as we said earlier, will help us in His groanings? It's the tenor of our life toward God and His divine will. And in Philippians 3.13 and 14 also says, We are told the high calling of God in Christ Jesus is then our calling a high calling. Has it emboldened our heart? Has it set us on heavenly things? Has it elevated our hopes, our tastes, our desires? Can we, as it says in Hebrews 13.1, be partakers of a heavenly calling? Obviously, heavenly calling being a call from heaven. If our calling is holy, high, and heavenly, we have been called by God for such a calling where God calls His people. It's a precious truth for us as believers. We may be poor or suffering or unknown or lack encouragement or feel our calling is insufficient in some way, but we are called to be God's children. We are to follow in Christ's footsteps. It will be the richest of all bliss. We shouldn't lament our troubles, but rather rejoice that we will one day be where there is neither sorrow nor crying, nor shall there be any more pain. One day. And as a common thread through this chapter has been that God has in the fullness of time called us. He is in the fullness of time. There is now no condemnation. He has called us to live after Him. And as the final words of encouragement in this chapter, I'm going to read you the Scriptures. And I said I'm not going to go into great detail over this because... Uh, just not. It was, uh, and, and this is where, you know... You get Jack's four weeks and Michael's four months that it would take to, to, to preach this. But I'm just going to read verses 31 through 39 and close with that. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring the charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from this love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How very encouraging those words are as we look at the God who selected us, who called us to be like His Son, and we know that if God is for us, no one can be against us. Who can lay a charge against us? Who can condemn us? And the answer is nobody. Pray with me.
Dear God, we thank you so much for allowing us to live lives that can glorify you, that we can live new lives according to the Spirit, that we can fight a war with your help. We pray that you would help us to not be timid, to not fall down, to not lose that which is our very essence, but that we would be committed Christians, that we would give you the honor and glory, and that we would realize that if you are for us, that no one of consequence can be against us. I pray that as you take us from here, and as we live our lives, that you would help us to live our lives encouraged by what we can do for you with the Spirit. Thank you for all your blessings. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.